So we started a new sermon series last week. Uh, We're going to study together through the book of Joshua. If you're looking for something to do on your weekends for the next nine weeks, just read through the book of Joshua. It's not that long. You can sit down and read through the whole thing. And here's the thing about the book of Joshua. It is a great story. It's a, it's a whole book that's a great story, and it's a whole book that has some great stories in it. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to tell you the story that we read in Joshua chapter 2. Chapter 2 is considered like the second half of the introduction. Chapter 1, we talked about it last week, it was the introduction. Chapter 2, it's like we didn't introduce it enough, so we're going to introduce it a little more today. Uh, and, and here's my summary of what this story is about. You can focus on a number of different things, but I'm going to title this The Story of the Two Incompetent Spies. That is a potential title for Joshua chapter 2. But before we get to that story, let me just remind us where we've been. Uh, I gave you a little card last week. If you didn't get it, there's one on the table in the Welcome Center out there. The card says, How do I yield my heart? To God. This question comes from some words that Joshua spoke at the very end of his life as he was reflecting on his whole life, his whole leadership of the people of Israel. He said, I'm going to summarize to you what it means to follow God. It means yield your hearts to God. And so here's the question I'd love us to engage to to make this purposeful somehow, to put this on your bathroom mirror, to put it on the dashboard of car, to, to, to pin it to your cubicle at work. Is cubicle, do people have cubicles at work anymore? I guess you can tape it to your computer screen. Um, I would love us to spend these weeks saying, how do I learn to yield my heart to God? Now, the people of Israel, they have been rescued by God from slavery. Things were bad, and God came in and rescued them. And not only did God rescue them, but God said to Israel, Israel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. I'm going to bless you in great ways. And at the center of this blessing is that God was going to give some land to Israel. And the land was just 500 miles away. Just 500 miles. And it took them 40 years to cover 500 miles. But now, at the beginning of the book of Joshua, they're finally going get to get off the roundabout of wandering in the wilderness. And they're going to get on with the business of going to receive the blessing God had given them. Now, Joshua chapter 1 sort of set the stage for this national expectation, this sense of excitement, this electricity in the room around the country. And Joshua chapter 2 sets the same anticipation, but on a little more granular level. And we find out at the beginning of Joshua 2 that Joshua is going to make a choice as a leader that he watched his mentor Moses make long ago. And this whole story is going to uh, sort of point up for us one really significant theme. And the theme is that all of us live our lives filled with assumptions and expectations. Let me ask you this. Uh, Are there any people in your life that you assume are going to behave a certain way, speak a certain way, act a certain way. Do you, have you ever had an expectation walking into a room? Maybe it's a room at work with a boss, 
and you have a meeting and you're just, you know this boss, so you have an expectation that because you know this boss, oh, this is not going to be a fun meeting. Or maybe it's Thanksgiving and your relatives come over to your house for Thanksgiving and crazy Uncle Joe decides to come for Thanksgiving and you just go, I just know that because crazy Uncle Joe is going to be here What? Maybe it's going to be terrible. Maybe it's going to be hilarious. Maybe it's going to be awkward. We live our lives filled with assumptions and expectations about how the people around us behave. And Joshua chapter 2 is going to challenge us to, to name those assumptions that we might have and look them in the eye and call into question whether or not we really should live with assumptions like that. So here we go. Joshua. He decides, uh, we're on the banks of the Jordan River, we're going to go into Canaan, but before we do it, we've got to scope out the land, right? Any good military leader need, knows you need to get reconnaissance before you go into the land. When Joshua was younger, Moses had sent him to be a spy into Israel to spy out the land, and Joshua went in and looked around and came back and reported to Moses. So now Joshua is now the leader, and he's like, okay, I get how this works. I'm going to send two spies to get some military information because we need to know how strong is the fighting force? How fortified are the cities? What is the exact location? What is the best route for getting to the cities that we're going to go in and have to end up fighting with? Joshua wants to uh, gather appropriate military intelligence. Now, There's a really interesting theme to this because it says, we're going to read Joshua chapter 2-1 in just a second, but it says Joshua chose two spies. And so not only is the nation of Israel as a whole pretty excited to get off the roundabout and, and get ahead in life right now, but also these two spies, I think, are pretty excited well as well because they can kind of do the math. They're like, wait a minute. Joshua got chosen by Moses to be a spy. And now Joshua is the leader of the nation of Israel. So these two guys are like, now he's choosing me to be a spy. And I mean, like, all hail the chief is playing in their minds as they have visions of their own futures where they get to rise to be the next leader of the people of Israel. And oh, not only are things looking good for the nation of Israel, but things are looking good for these two spies chosen to go and scope out the land that they're about to enter. So, I mean, can can you feel the electricity in the room as everybody's sitting around the campfire? Oh, that's what we're feeling as we read Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Okay. Okay, I I don't have access to the ancient Israelite spy manual, but I don't think you would find in that manual instructions to hide in the house of a prostitute. And to make matters worse, the commentators and the people who who know Hebrew say that some of the language used caused the reader to question whether they were hiding 
in Rahab's house, or maybe they were seeking to engage her professional services in Rahab's house. The first readers of the story are immediately very uncomfortable. We are in a, we are in a very exciting place, and you guys decide to go hide in the house of a prostitute. Okay, okay, maybe it'll get better, right? Okay, maybe, maybe you made a mistake, but maybe it'll get better from here. Maybe they're brilliant. Maybe this is just really brilliant spycraft, and things will get better from here. Let's read verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, <laughs> Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. Okay. You know what I was saying about expectations? So, so we look at the two spies, and we know the history of Joshua the spy, and we think, these guys are probably the best of the best. I mean, they're going to go in, and they're going to gather incredible intelligence, and they're going to bring it back, and it's going to go incredibly well. And by verse 1, we're a little uncomfortable by some of their decision-making. And by verse 2, we find out they have completely failed. The king of Jericho knows who they are, they know why they're there, and they know where they're hiding. These are literally the most incompetent spies the world has ever seen. And we're really concerned with that. we got to kind of put ourselves in the mind of the Israelites at that time. We're really concerned because we think God is giving us this blessing and God is leading us. And these two guys really messed it up from the very beginning. If I wanted to be like the author of Joshua and use some kind of uncomfortable plays on language, I might say, these guys really screwed it up. (laughs) And I think that's faithful to what a lot of the language in the text is doing to make us uncomfortable. So I want to pause right here and just say um, expectations, right? If you're an ancient Israelite and two spies go in, your assumptions and expectations are that these spies are going to be the good guys. They're going to be the successful guys. Things are going to go right, and things are going to go well. And your assumption would be that a Canaanite woman, patriarchal society, women are, are much lower in status, and a prostitute is the quintessential bad guy, the enemy. As I said in my Ultra Gmail on Friday, nothing good could possibly come from having Rahab in this story. So the story continues. The king of Jericho knows that these spies are in town, and so he sends his soldiers, and they knock on Rahab's door. Hey, um, hey we know that uh, a couple guys came to your house last night. And she's like, well... I mean, yeah. Uh, they're like, oh, no, no, no. There were two Israelites here to spy out the land. And we're really nervous. Because suddenly the fate of this critical mission rests in the hands of the worst possible character. What's going to happen? And Rahab decides to protect the spies. And she says, oh, well, yeah, 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 yeah. They were here. And, um, but I didn't know who they were. I didn't know where they came from, and actually, sorry, um, they left already. Like, they, they left, but hey, you know what? Rahab suddenly, you know, reads the situation really well and puts on her best sort of role play. She's like, you know what? 
you guys, you soldiers, you guys look really, really smart and really capable and really strong. And I'm sure, I bet if you go right now and chase them out of the city, like get, just get going right now, I bet you will be able to catch them because you don't know this, but these spies are really incompetent. Like they are really incompetent. You'll totally be able to catch them. And the lie that she tells works, which makes us even more uncomfortable because here's assumption number two. I'm an Israelite. I follow God. I've read the Ten Commandments. Something about not lying is pretty prominent in the way God wants his people to do his work. And suddenly Rahab is a liar. And because she's a liar, she just saved the lives of the two Israelite spies. And she walks up onto the roof where she's got the two spies hidden under her flax. Next time you're playing hide-and-go-seek and you want to have a good hiding spot, just get your flax out. Uh, probably whole big stalks of flax, not the flax seed that I put on my oatmeal this morning. That is nicely roasted to a golden brown. We're talking probably big, you know, tall stalks of flax that she's covered the two spies with on the roof of her house. So Rahab walks up and she's talking to them. She's like, all right, hey, spies, get up. They close the gates. The soldiers are gone. You're, you're stuck here for the night. Let's have a little conversation. And yet again, we're not sure what's going to happen. Because all we know at this point is that we've had our, our expectations, our assumptions primed quite significantly to see that there's some good guys and there's some bad guys. But the good guys aren't doing what the good guys are supposed to do. And the bad guys aren't doing what the bad guy is supposed to do. And so what's going to happen when now they come together and they have a conversation? And suddenly we hear the first sentence that comes out of Rahab's mouth in her conversation on the rooftop with these two spies. Rahab says, pretty surprisingly, I know that the Lord has given you this land. The first thing Rahab does, Rahab the Canaanite, Rahab the amoral person, Rahab the liar, the first thing she does is she acknowledges Israel's God. And not only does she acknowledge it, but she goes on to list all of the things that she and all the people of Jericho have heard about the great things that God has been doing. She starts this sort of crescendo of a profession of faith that's really incredible and just to seal the deal and make it abundantly clear that Rahab is having some sort of a conversion moment and realizing the goodness of Israel's God is she ends her whole speech with this sentence. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land and I know your God is good and great for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And immediately, all of our ears kind of perk up. And our, our, our ancient Israelite selves go, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Wait a minute. I've heard that before. I've heard that before somewhere. Where have I heard that before? And then I pull out, you know, I pull out my Bible app and I flip through it. And I was like, oh, that was Moses talking about the greatness of our God in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, 39, they didn't have chapters and verses, and they probably, you know, it wasn't written, but you get it. They didn't have a Bible app either. 
Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Rahab is a character who forces us to challenge our assumptions and expectations because from the very beginning, we're uncomfortable that she's in the story. We don't like the way she conducts herself. And then when she comes up and has a conversation on the roof with the spies, she makes a profession of faith that is shocking, that is beautiful, that is in harmony with God's teaching. As one author that I was reading said, regardless of what her profession is, she makes a profession of faith that would make any Israelite proud. Drop the mic. Rahab says, I know that your God is the one true God. And the implication is she's professing also that she knows there is no other. So the spies now are in a really interesting circumstance. One of the people that they're planning to come in and take over the city, we're going to hear more about Jericho chapter, uh, about the battle of Jericho in chapter 5. We're going to hear about that in a few weeks. I don't remember. A few weeks. Um, We're going to talk about some of the questions around, wait a minute, wait a minute. God wants to bless everybody, but he's going to do that by going in and and affecting a military takeover of these cities. Like, I don't know, I've got some questions around that. Good, you should have questions around that. We'll talk about those questions, but not today. Um, So the spies suddenly are are in a hard spot because one one of the enemies just became their savior. And now Rahab continues the conversation with them. And she's like, all right, fellas. Clearly, you don't know what you're doing, so let me advise you on where things need to go from here. Um, because, because, let's be honest, uh, I, saved you, I saved you once, but I'm not doing it again. You know, and the two spies look at each other, and they're like, don't worry, Rahab, I am not throwing away my shot. I will, thank you, I will, I, I will make sure that we get it right. So Rahab says, here's what you guys need to do. You need to climb down to the window, because my house has a window and it's in the city wall, you need to climb down the window. You need to go into the hills, and you need to hide for three days. And you can just feel Rahab, it's like she's talking to them like they're children. She's like, do you guys understand? There's soldiers looking for you. If you don't hide, they're going to find you again, and they're going to kill you, and that's not, that's not my problem. So you need to look at me. Three days, say three days, right? And so the, so the spies go down, and, and the scene almost makes it look like they're literally hanging from this rope out her window. We don't know for sure when Rahab goes, oh, and actually one more thing. What? My, my forearms hurt. Um, you know, I helped you guys out pretty good here, right? I mean, I, I helped you out. Um, I'm, I'm going to need you to help me out as well. And they're like, okay, what do you need? Be quick. When you guys come and your army comes and you take over the city, um, I need you to promise that me and anybody in my house is safe. Like, this is, this, is, this, is, you know, this is free zone, safety inside the house right here. I need you to promise. And she doesn't just say, I need you to promise. She says, I need you to swear an oath or a covenant, to make a real promise to me that me and my family are safe if we're in this house. And here's the second time in the story where our ancient Israelite ears go, wait a minute. You want us to make a, you want us to make a, an oath? You want us to make a covenant with you? 
that you're safe. And the reason our ears go is because long ago in Exodus, when God was making these promises to Israel that they would be blessed by having this land, he added some instructions about how things were supposed to go. He made it clear, okay, I will give into your hands the people who live in the land. I'm going to, you know, you're going to go, you're going to fight, you're going to conquer, you're going to get the land. But I need you to do it in the right way. And, and one of the ways I need you to do this is to make sure you do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. All right? So go in, take the land, no covenants, no oaths, no promises. So the spies are sitting here, hanging from the rope. Uh, what do we do? I don't know. Exodus said, we, you know, we're not supposed to do this. I know, but our lives are kind of in her hands still. Like, she could cut the rope. We're still kind of stuck. And all of us watching, you know, the live feed of this happens from the drone flying overhead, we're sitting here going, they didn't, you didn't swear the oath, did you? Like, please tell me you didn't swear the oath. But they did. They did swear the oath. And it turns out that they swore the oath and they made good on the promise. And as we're going to find out, when they come and they do eventually attack the city of Jericho, Rahab and her whole house is protected and kept safe when the battle actually comes. Which leaves all sorts of questions in our minds because from verse number one through to the very last verse, all of our assumptions and all of our expectations have been completely flipped upside down. This is a story of the greatest imaginable reversal and the inversion of what we would expect to happen as God brings his people into their land. And just to put a little exclamation point on it at the end, here's how the author wraps up the whole story. The spies do um, what Rahab tells them to do, and the story ends with this. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua... The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. That's an interesting phrase, melting in fear because of us. What made them choose to use that particular phrase? Oh, that's right. That's right. They got that from just a few verses earlier when Rahab said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Their official report to Joshua is to just copy and paste what Rahab <laughs> said to them. So here's the story of Rahab in short. The heroes, the spies, they have failed. The villain, Rahab, who we would assume nothing good could possibly come out of her being in the story, the villain has saved the day. And the only profession of faith in this whole chapter comes from the lips, not of an Israelite, but of an enemy. Uh, the story plays on our assumptions and our expectations. It, it plays on the idea that when we see each of the characters in the story, certain presuppositions come to mind about how things are going to go. And the design is such to force us to recognize that 
When we make those same assumptions in our own minds, when, we, when our hearts are caught in the snare of dismissing people, uh, people's possibility or seeing no hope or no potential, um, we need to recognize that what we see is not what God sees. Have you ever been in a relationship? Maybe a boss, maybe a family member. Heck, maybe, maybe your relationship with your own self? Have you ever been in a relationship and you've looked at a person, you've looked at yourself in the mirror, you've looked at somebody that you're, you're trying to know, you're trying to love, you're trying to help, and you've thought, you know what? I just don't think there's any hope. I, I, I think the challenges and the brokenness in this person's life are so great that there's no way God could actually bring something good out of this. Have have you ever looked at a life and and thought what ancient Israel would have thought of Rahab and looked at a life and said, that's the worst possible person, and they're beyond hope? Well, if we ever see in people, whether ourselves or others, if we ever see impossibility, the story of Rahab forces us to recognize that right there is where God sees possibility. Do Do you see any Rahabs in your life? Who are the people, maybe because of who they are socially, maybe because of the way they dress, maybe because of, you know, our, I don't want to talk about it too often, but obviously our country's filled with divisions over political points of view. So maybe their political points of view are such. Our country is filled with moral questions, all sorts of moral issues. And you look at somebody whose morality and ethics are such. And Is there anybody that you look at, and because of who they are, or what they believe, or how they behave, or how they talk, you look at them, and kind of like ancient Israel looked at Rahab, and you go, I don't know. I'm just going to write this character off, because nothing good could possibly happen. If we can acknowledge, and that's hard work. I mean, that's, that's hard work to, to mine our own hearts honestly enough to, to bring up and, and really say, yeah, these are the people that I kind of have written off in, in my own uh, you know, assessment. These are the people that I've already judged, I've already criticized, I've already... But if we can do that, if we can acknowledge who those people are... Um, Let me show you how the story of Rahab ends because um, it doesn't just end with her saving the day and then, you know, the the biblical story going on. But three different times in the New Testament, Rahab is specifically mentioned as an example of what it means to faithfully live for God. She's mentioned um, once by the brother of Jesus. His name is James and he wrote, a letter to the church long ago. And in his letter to the church, he talks a lot about what it means to be a righteous person, to be a person whose life is characterized by living, you know, living, choosing, acting the way God would want us to do. And here's what James says as an example of righteousness. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab is a shining example of righteousness. Or again, uh, the author of the book of Hebrews. We don't really know who wrote the book of Hebrews. um, But the author spends a whole chapter and a half 
just listing some of the greatest examples of faith throughout the history of God and his relationship with, with God's people. And, and these are just like, this is, it's called the roll call of faith, all the most brilliant examples. And the author of Hebrews in that list says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab is an example of righteous living. Rahab is an example of God honoring faith. And then the, the, you know, the, the icing on the top of the cake. Uh, I just had a slice of birthday cake last night, and it was really good. And there was a lot of icing on the top of it. Um, when the author Matthew is writing his gospel, he starts in really good Jewish fashion. He starts the whole gospel with a genealogy, a really long genealogy. And if you go and read it, You'll read it and you'll go, Matthew, that is the worst possible way to start a story. Like, what were you thinking? But Matthew is doing something that his first audience would have been familiar with. He's writing the history of the people that came in line before Jesus was born. He's he's getting our expectations ready to say, how do I welcome the coming of Jesus, God himself on earth? Well, I do it by tracing this beautiful lineage of where God's been at work in his people. And and Matthew starts off the way we would expect. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we're like, yeah, David and Abraham. Yeah, that's great. Put Abraham in the story because I love Abraham and Father Abraham, all the, it's great. And then he lists a bunch of names and they're names that we're familiar with. Jesse and Obed and, you know, names that you're familiar with. And then, uh, let's see, it, it, what is it? It continues on. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, father of Jacob. Familiar names. And then suddenly we get out of nowhere Solomon, the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Matthew chose not to take the awkwardness and tension of Rahab's story and and kind of just leave it out conveniently. I mean, it's a list of all men. And he decided to put Rahab in the story as an example of just what kind of a God is showing up on earth. And here's the example. The example is this. Israel looked at Rahab's life and said, that's as bad as it gets. Beyond hope. Nothing good could possibly come out of that. It's only brokenness. It's only evil. It's only bad. And God says, where we look and see hopelessness, the gospel demands that we acknowledge that no one, no one, is ever beyond hope. That God will use whomever is available and open to working with him. God will use whomever, no matter their past, no matter their background, no matter the challenges or the awkwardness or the uncomfortable or the tension. God doesn't need nice, neat, polished people. The gospel isn't built on, oh, get your life together and then God will use you. The gospel is built on the idea that I don't care how messy life looks. No one is ever beyond hope. Which means you and I have to suddenly ask ourselves, what's your move 
what's my move going to be? Because I think if we're honest, we would probably acknowledge that just like ancient Israel, we do, in fact, have some assumptions and some expectations. There are, in fact, people in our lives, and we look at them, and we think, well, I guess that person, that person's life couldn't possibly bring any good out of it. So I want to suggest a couple ways for us as we continue to be people trying to learn how to yield our hearts to God, a couple ways for us to put that into practice. First one, simple idea, um, be like Rahab. What do I mean? Rahab didn't let her past, Rahab didn't let her past define God's plans for her future. Rahab said, I believe in your God and his goodness, and the evidence is that because of her faith in God and her willingness to do what God called her to do, God effected great change in her life. Be like Rahab. Don't let your past define what God wants for your future. Second, I I shared last Sunday, and if you weren't here, I'd really encourage you to listen to last Sunday's message. We sort of set the tone for this whole sermon, but I said, I'm going to challenge you each week to choose one of three practices that I think are going to help shape our hearts and minds to be people who yield our hearts to God. Those three practices were meditate on God's word. And meditate doesn't mean close your eyes and be silent. It means get it on your mouth, get it on your lips, speak it out loud. To practice curiosity. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. And to cultivate joy. Without joy, without the joy of knowing God's love in our lives, God's character formation cannot happen in our lives. Joy is essential to have in us for God to do his work in us. But I think the story of Rahab really, um, really highlights this middle practice of practice curiosity. See, because again, we look at Rahab. We look at who she is. We look at what she does. We look at where she is. And we already know the end of the story. But if we say we already know the end of the story, we're going to miss what God wants to do. If instead, we can, in our own lives, be honest about where we've written people off in our own lives, and we can say, you know what? I'm not just going to judge them, forget about them, give up on them. Instead, I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to keep looking because I have a holy anticipation. I have a divine curiosity. I have this sense of like, I know God is at work. God says he is at work at all times and in all places. He is doing things in people's lives. So if I don't see it right now, the problem is not that God isn't working. The problem is just that I'm not seeing it. And practicing curiosity forces me to keep looking until I can find until I can see what God is doing. I'm going I'm to wait and see where God shows up. And actually, that's probably even wrong, because it's not that God's not there, and I need to wait for him to show up. It's that I just don't see it, and I'm going to wait and see where God has already showed up and is already at work. Who are the people in your life, who are the people in my life, that we need to practice a holy curiosity that says, I don't see it. I don't see any evidence of God at work, but you know what? I'm going to keep looking, and I'm going to keep waiting with eager anticipation that God will reveal the good work he's doing. Um, I made three little card 
things with each of these three practices. They're on the tables on the way out. Um, just little prompts. If you want to engage more, meditation, curiosity, joy, um, you know, again, glue it to your windshield or just put it under your, <laughs> put it under your pillow to learn it by osmosis at night, something like that. Um, because here's what we know. God is present and at work in your life. God is present and at work through your life. And a big part of our job is simply to be the people who have eyes to keep looking and see what God is already doing. Would you guys pray with me? God, I confess, and I hope all of us in this room and and connecting online, I hope all of us would be willing to confess that um, too often we let the things that we see define what we think is possible. Instead of looking to you and the way you, God, have taken all sorts of hurt and broken and backwards lives and you have brought beauty and abundance and new life out of it because of your son Jesus, uh, we, we let what we see define the world instead of letting you define it. Um, I confess it's true in my heart and I, I invite all of us to consider where it's true in all of our hearts. And, and God, help us in the week ahead to practice a holy curiosity that instead of just writing people off, says, I'm going to keep looking until I can see the good work that God is doing. Amen.